0: Every single one of my bosses have been white in my 12-year career. This is not a system set up for Black women to thrive.
1: Hi, my name's Milena Williams, and I'm so happy to be back for season two. I cannot wait to spill tea. I really missed it.
2: And I'm Dalton Higgins, a.k.a. Dalton Pack Chopra, a.k.a. Dalton Digital. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mel. (laughs) I I come from the hip-hop world where everybody has like 20 nicknames or street aliases. I I know, it's all shady as hell.
1: I love how it's shady. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. How are you feeling, Mel?
1: I'm feeling good. I mean, I know it's a really difficult time for everybody. It's a very unstable time. I feel blessed that nobody I know has been sick. And there's just so much going on these days. I mean, entire systems are collapsing. New ones are being rebuilt. We're finally doing something about the disgusting police. Black Lives Matter has gone global and white supremacy has found new and cruel ways to disagree. I mean, this is such a historical moment and we're going to get into it this season.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, the police need to be defunded in uh, Toronto, Canada. I can speak from that uh, point of view frame of reference where we're based. And I'm sure they need to be defunded elsewhere, you know, throughout North America.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, to acknowledge how we got here, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic, another traumatizing murder of a black person, George Floyd was caught on film, and people just had enough. I mean... Like you said, we certainly have no shortage of police terror on black and indigenous communities here. That can be said almost for anywhere in the world. So I just feel like, you know, so there's just no room for silence or complicity anymore, which is great. But that's also meant that we have to witness white people going through some very sketchy motions, like acting like they, they just found out this was going on. Is that yeah. our job?
2: no no there there will be no hand-holding uh on black tea season two. Oh my god um, no they gotta figure it out they gotta do the work they gotta get in the trenches yeah. and take action you know like the lip service is just tired it's 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 dull it's uninteresting it's disingenuous uh, shall i go on
1: So our first topic that we're going to explore is black women in media. We're going to be looking at truth and accountability. So, you know, we've witnessed a lot of whistleblowing about anti-black racism in the workplace in almost every profession recently. Um, We've been hearing about unspoken issues that people have experienced at work, ranging from microaggressions to outright racism. And these things are being recounted and countless companies are being held accountable. Love to see it. So one of the things we wanted to explore were what is this moment going to produce and what kind of future we're building. So we have Kathleen Newman-Bremang to speak to us about this. And Kathleen is a Toronto-based writer and producer. Um, She's also a graduate of Ryerson University's journalism program, and she's worked for some of the biggest needed media networks in North America, including MTV, Much Music, and CTV. She is currently the senior writer at Refinery29 Canada and My Personal Beyonce.
0: Oh, what? (laughs) It's true. Mel, you're going to make me cry. That is the highest compliment, as we know. As a card-carrying member of the Beehive, I I, I am speechless. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I just I feel like you know I'm not alone in the fact I followed your career for such a long time, and when I began writing for Lainey Gossip, it felt so good to write comfortably in that space about basically anything I wanted. Um, especially equality issues, racism, sexism, and weave it into gossip, which is my favorite thing to do in the world. And I just, I hadn't even met you at the time or spoken to you, but there was really like almost an invisible door that I feel like Black women leave open while doing media work. Mm. And I just so appreciated just like the particularity. And so I really love the fact that your ability to tell hard truths and name things for what they are and that there's just so much power in that. So I just want to know like... You know, when did you realize that the media ecosystem here was not set up to properly engage or accommodate you as a black woman? And how did you get the courage to say out loud what so many of us wanted to say?
0: Oh, I mean, thank you for all of those amazing, nice things you just said. And yeah, I will say that uh, specifically about Lainey Gossip, uh, Lainey has been someone who has championed my voice and let me say what I wanted to say, which was something I did not experience in Canadian media before then. Um, so that was really exciting. And I'm, I'm so, I read all of your work on Lainey, and I'm so excited that you have that, that space now. Um, and yeah, that was, that was about somebody letting me do that. And I think that one of the biggest things in Canadian media is that the gatekeepers don't let us do the work. Um, so, you know, as far as when I realized that the system was not designed for me and people who look like me and that it was really set up for us to fail, it was pretty early on, you know, I, I, uh, started my career officially at, at much music, which was a dream job for me. And, The microaggressions that I experienced, like, you know, I outline a lot of them in the woman, Black Woman in Media piece, an essay I wrote um, about my career and, and, you know, microaggressions like another VJ telling me she didn't find black men attractive or comments on my hair to an incident. I also detail in the piece. Uh, where I was working as a VJ and my boss wanted me to be something I wasn't based on stereotypes and based on what he thought a black woman should be. And I lost the job because of it. Um, You know, every single one of my bosses have been white in my 12 year career. This is not a system set up for black women to thrive. And as far as how I got the courage to speak out, it was really because of the people that came before me who opened doors for me and then so many of the other black women who, who spoke out about their experiences. You know, we saw it in the States at Complex, at Refinery29, where I work now, um, here in Canada, Global News, at CBC. And that pushed me to join them. I knew I had to speak up because of what I experienced and, and the story I had to tell.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, that your your epiphany or aha moment uh, sort of came around the time uh, when you were uh, kicking around much music, uh, because that's when my epiphany came. Um, that's kind of where <laughs> no, no, which is not to sit here and slam much music. But um, it's interesting because uh, that's probably where I first met Kathleen. And, and, and since then, I'd seen her in different spaces. She had booked me to come, you know, do segments over at the social. And but it's interesting when I used to come into much music, um, you know, working as a paid pundit, you know, which is essentially you know you come in you're this low-paid uh talking head who comes in to talk about popular culture every week and uh, we were actually you know you know this is in the early 2000s actually before Kathleen was really you know part of much but we were shopping a book deal for Master T um, in the early 2000s and you know at the time he was arguably the network's leading VJ right so um you know never mind him interviewing all of these you know hugely popular rap stars and black pop stars at the time. Like, you know, he had interviewed Tupac Shakur, Dr. Dre, but he had also interviewed all the biggest uh, white and crossover stars of the day too. So he'd interviewed like Madonna, you know, Jennifer Lopez, Mariah Carey, Spice Girls, and it goes on and on. And so as we were shopping this uh, for a book publishing deal, uh, one of the agents, you know, cause my, you know, Master T is like everywhere. He's ubiquitous. He's omnipresent. Everybody knows him. And, you know, I sent a note to this, this, this very powerful book publishing agent at the time and uh, about getting a book deal. And she, she wrote back and I quote, I confess with embarrassment that I didn't know who Master T was until I read the post this <laughs> wow. morning. Right. And she, she she continues on and says, it probably makes me sadly the wrong person for this book. But you could try the younger editors at the mainstream houses. But the guys who make the ultimate decisions are probably also out of the demographic. So this is our, my, you know, that's my wake up call in the early 2000s. I'm like, wait a second, Master T had interviewed Madonna and the Spice Girls and Janet Jackson. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you'd never heard of Master T? Um, so that, that's, my, that's my little story, you know, it goes back to much music. I don't know, that's kind of weird, but um, yeah, I just thought I'd share that with you, Kathleen.
0: Yeah, no, thank you, Dalton, because I mean, you're also one of the people that, it, that I saw doing the work I wanted to do that inspired me to do it. And I think that it's, that's such a good story because think of how uninformed the people that make the decisions are. Like at that time, every Black person knew who Master T was.
1: But like, you have to be doing that on purpose and that's, it's strategic, it has to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's that. Yeah, I think it's, a, you're right. There's, there's strategy there in that there's certain voices they don't want to be amplified. And then there's also ignorance, which should not be an excuse, but that's also there for sure.
2: Yeah, totally. So, actually, um, can we uh, continue on this uh, this uh, mutual admiration society? You know, standing. You know, like uh, clearly, Nell <laughs> was like fangirling. You know what I mean? Which is great. Yeah, you know? like I'm, I'm here being, to you know to right stand. You know saying over Kathleen Newman <laughs> um editorials at Refinery Twenty Nine. Um, you know, because that's when I certainly became a bigger fan. But let's talk a little bit about Refinery29. Now, Refinery29 is described as a modern woman's destination for how to live a stylish, well-rounded life where you can find, you know, entertainment news, fashion tips, health, things of that nature. Now, last I checked, I was not a modern woman. And <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a story I just glossed over um, recently about how to feel after taking a pregnancy test and All this stuff that has nothing to do with me. I have kids and all that, but I cannot relate to taking a pregnancy test or doing a deep dive into summer makeup tips. Now, so here's the thing i now read refinery 29 because if i'm to be honest with myself it's because of your fantastic editorials so what i wanted Mm, to ask you was yeah so was this all a part of your master plan you know to get like married you know black dudes with children who are into (laughs) hip-hop to become obsessed with refinery (laughs) 29.
0: wow i mean again these compliments are just making me blush over here um well you know it's really interesting because actually our editor-in-chief carly fortune just wrote about Quote unquote lifestyle journalism, and how um, a site like Refinery 29 does kind of get um, categorized as just about fashion and beauty, which I love fashion and beauty. Those are all great things. Um, but we also do a lot of journalism, and, and uh, my colleagues in the States have, there's a news division that does great great journalism as well. And so the stuff that I have brought to the site has really just been, again, and my editor giving me the the space to follow the things I want to write about. Um, And so I don't know if it wasn't really a master plan, but it was, I, as much as I love fashion and beauty, if I were to write a fashion or beauty story, it would probably be from a different lens than, you know, here are five lipsticks and there's a space for here are five lipsticks and that's great. But, you know, how I've covered fashion at the site is, um, you know, I went to Toronto fashion week last year and there was a fashion show where all of the models except one were white and they were all wearing cornrows. And so I obviously came back from that show, which I was just meant to go. I was just supposed to go to a fashion week and like find some trends and like write a cute story. And I was like, yeah, okay, I mean, Here we got to call the this micro-aggressions. out. Yes. We got to call out the fact that there's appropriation happening at this fashion week that is still disproportionately featuring white models and white designers. And so that's what I did. And so I think that Dalton, to go back to your question, I think that I just cover things in a way that is through my lens and because that's the only way that I can cover things. And I think that Ends up translating into stories that a wider audience, not just millennial women, which is supposed to be our target, can relate to or are interested in. Um, and especially for if I'm, you know, talking about being a black woman in Canada, there, are, yeah, there are things that apply to black men in Canada as well to to cling on to and read. But like,
1: I just feel like that richness, and you know, that I always say that like a black, a true fulsome black feminist queer politic includes everybody right mm-hmm. so by nature of you being a black one be able to do this work observe certain things opening up a space to say this is outrageous you know and even like when it comes to the gatekeeping thing that's also a form of appropriation because you're kind of dictating at this point how we are going to be seen and media is always going to lead that
2: absolutely yeah, totally yeah I remember, yeah, I used to write some editorials way back in the days, just it, things tied to like appropriation or appreciation and it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I was triggered seeing, you know, just, yeah, the, you know, when you see like a non-South Asian wearing a bindi and the dread... Mm-hmm. I, I, I had i had locks, you know, what they call dreadlocks. I had—I wore locks for like 19 years, you know, even back to the Much Music days. Kathleen, you probably remember, like I had locks. Yeah, whatever. I do. Yeah, so yeah. Was, a lot of people didn't know who I was. They're like, who's that dreadlock guy like talking about, you know, music and popular culture? And so what used to really irritate and agitate me you know that's why when you said that you know white guy with cornrows thing you know i was just like my knee-jerk reaction was is was not a good one you know like because mm. the, the whole dreadlock thing holy smokes like i live in i live in the city you know you know down, close to downtown toronto and i the, the amount of uh just basically like caucasian men that would uh sport this uh hairstyle you know locks and be completely devoid or separated from the culture from which it comes, you know, so that, you know, which is, you know, um, African culture, Jamaican culture, Rastafarianism, you know, if you want to go as deep as, you know, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, whatever your entry point, but it has such richness and a deep, rich history as to why the hair is coiled and interpreted the way it is, you know, so I just see these guys who are like just, you know, these guys, rock and roll dudes playing, you know I mean? They had no clue as to the history behind the, the hairstyle, the cornrows, which also ties back to um, as far as, you know, black women of African descent the continent there's a whole history there so that's why when you said i was just yeah it's triggering you know yeah
1: it is but again even if this was like it doesn't matter when it is and oftentimes canada is so behind in this conversation you if there was any attention paid to this fashion show we'd probably be having the kind of conversation in media is this offensive instead of naming it Mm -hmm. right so i just feel like canada is always trying to ask these bizarre questions (laughs) around racism And then they just find somebody that basically says, this is not important. This is important. And it's
0: gaslighting. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you're, I mean, you're both right, as always. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that it's, yeah, the reason why these things continue to happen in this country is because we start the conversation at zero again every time.
2: And and the other the other thing too, uh, Kathleen, is uh, you know just just as far as the pigeonholing process, uh, it, it's interesting because some of the things you've written for Refinery Twenty Nine, like have have you know not that much to do with race because you know you are still very much just a human being. You know, last I checked, yeah. so it was just like yeah. yeah, you've written great stuff. You <laughs> Happens, know what I mean? Where it's yeah, just like
1: yeah, you to be black.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: you just have to be black. Like you've written some made like uh, a piece. You know, back to the fashion beat. You wrote a piece about Canadian fashion uh, designers, can they withstand COVID-19? You know what I mean? It's just like, mm, so people yeah. see the byline, they may be thinking it's I uh, I don't know, a Caucasian, a South Asian indigenous. I, I'm not sure they see your byline, yeah. but you just happen to be a black woman writing about, uh, the fashion industry withstanding COVID-19. So it's important that I put that out there as well, is that you're writing about, uh, things that certainly have to do with race because race, uh, impacts and infects all sectors of society. But, uh, you've done some really great reporting on things that have nothing to do with race. Um, so kudos to you for that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I think that that's also a a big, important thing, because like you said, yeah, race is going to come into play just by virtue of me being a black woman. But yeah, I mean, I'm an entertainment like pop culture reporter, uh, first and foremost. And a lot Mm -hmm. of the times. Yeah. When I'm just talking to some designers, you know, I think that who which designers I choose is informed sometimes by who I am. And so I'll, you know, make sure that there is a diverse list of div- designers I'm talking to. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the times I just write, like I was writing recaps of Shit's Creek that is yeah. like, yeah. you know, that has nothing to do with, with anything other than I'm a fan of that TV show. And I thought it's, uh, you know, I think it's funny. Yeah. And any other of my like, you know, TV or movie criticism Yeah, I get to hopefully I get to just do that job as well as anyone else, no matter what their race is um, doing that job.
2: Right. And that's truly. Yeah, yeah, that's truly that's progress to me.
1: Yeah. And like, Yeah. yeah, that is exact. That's what people wish they were talking about when they see they don't see color. That's why we don't allow them to say it, because you actually have to be coming from a place where, you know, it's equity minded diversity. You know, who hasn't been represented, you know, who needs to be represented. You know what imagery, you know how powerful it is. And this goes back to the gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's great that Mm -hmm. you're able to make those decisions. I just want to shift a little bit to... um, you know, again, the, that sort of black feminist lens in your writing, because when I started to sort of formally study critical race theory, um, in school and and sort of identifying, exploring my identity too. Um, so I kind of did it through like a lot of authors, um, like bell hooks, James Baldwin, Norbasee Phillip, Nalo Hopkinson, Angela Davis, just so many, Mm -hmm. you know, these people. So I just found, um, there was such a freedom in expressing, um, black identity and liberation, but this also like simultaneously learning about Black diasporic history and present day realities that like entire livelihoods were just disrupted by anti-Black racism wherever we look in our history. And I just feel like this push and pull, the joy and the pain, it's so evident in Black art and Black resilience. So I feel like it's even radical now as a lot. some people are revisiting their politics. Some people are exploring it for the first time. So I just wanted I noticed that you include a lot of inspiration from black feminist thinkers and activists so how important is that to you
0: Oh it's the most important and I think that a lot of the conversation right now about you know educating yourself and for allies like informing whatever I think they think that we're not also educating ourselves that we that we just know this stuff and like sure yeah, we know our all, lived we're experiences always but I am, yeah, constantly learning and looking to, like you said, black feminist thinkers and activists and putting an ancestral context into everything I do. And I feel like I'm, you know, behind. Always, you know, I I think it's so, so important and I'm constantly learning and engaging. And, you know, Amanda Paris, she's one of the brightest Canadian feminist thinkers of my generation, in my opinion. And she does so much great work looking back Mm -hmm. at that ancestral context of protest in Canada and media in Canada. So I love learning from from her, who is, you know, like an adjacent peer Mm -hmm. of mine. But I also look to... Feminist thinkers globally who have like historically done incredible work. You mentioned Angela Davis and bell hooks. I also look to like Kimberly Crenshaw, yeah. uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Ijeoma Alua. Like uh-huh. there's so many people that I look to and lean on for, for their words and their work. Uh, Sandy Hudson, wow, yep. uh, who's also a Um, You know, and I think context, though, of how our elders have faced moments like this is so important because it helps us understand that we are not alone. It helps us learn from their work to inform our work. And I also think it's important not to be selfish during these moments and just to look to other feminist thinkers and activists, not that I am an activist myself, but to look to them for inspiration, for strength and for guidance. I think that it's we start getting into a real dangerous territory if we don't acknowledge that there are people who came before us.
1: Yeah. And we all need each other. It's true. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, also to uh, Kathleen, um, what I'd noticed or what we'd noticed rather is that, um, it, you know, throughout your career, which is, you know, you still have a long ways to go. You're a young, uh, you know, fabulous woman. Um, you, you, like you sort of jump back and forth between working, you know, on broadcast mm-hmm. mediums, like over to, you know, like, uh, you know, writing and stuff like that, writing, broadcast, producing, and those, you know, they're are two different beasts, you know. So, uh, for one, I wanted to know, like, uh, which do you prefer or find the most rewarding or challenging? You know, this idea of writing, producing, chase producing, that type of thing, and also uh, going back to Much Music, real talk, like, did you ever want to be a Much Music VJ? You know what I'm saying? Like, because yeah, you need your yeah, own show. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because the running joke is that a large yeah, bulk yeah, yeah. of the staffers that work there, they, at the end of the day, they want to be in front of the camera, you know, be the, yeah, next. they just Matt want to Babel be or, yeah, exactly. You know, again or whatever. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, as far as which I like, what I like better is writing and producing, I think that it depends on the day. I really love doing both. Um, and I hope in my career that I get to do both. So right now I'm writing full time and producing, you know, freelance on the side. And before that, when I was a producer at the social, I was producing full time and writing kind of on the side. So I would love to be able to always do that. Um, I also think it's wherever, whatever serves me best, you know, right now I get to work somewhere that they let me have a voice and, my voice for it, where I feel like I have autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so this, that's where I'm going to be. And if I get to work on a show as a producer that I feel I have the same thing, then I'll go there. Um, And then Mm -hmm. for much music. Yeah. I, you know what? I wanted to be a VJ. That was one of like an, an early dream of mine, like in high school. And then Uh, When I got there, it was as a producer and I pretty much just wanted to produce. Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to be on camera, but then, you know, bosses or colleagues or whatever started to ask about that if I had wanted to be on camera. And so then I did for a while. I was, as I put in my, in my essay about being a black woman Mm -hmm. in media, I was a VJ for about a year and it was really interesting. I feel like well, as soon as you're on camera, people just start saying things to you that they would never say or get away with saying otherwise. Wow. So being a VJ was amazing because it was a dream come true at times. And then it was also like another rude awakening about this industry and how this industry treats Black women.
2: Ah, so you, so you did in fact have a short stint as a Mushroom music VJ because th- yes. th- th- here, here, here's the crazy thing Um, at, you know, again, not here to slam or, you know, mushroom music, but uh, so, you know, this idea around kind of like a token, like there were a bunch of um, African Canadian uh, VJs that kind of, uh, they had really short stints there, you know? So yes, you, you know what I mean? So you'd have like a Rainbow Sun Franks, you know, yes, and he Rainbow, was kind absolutely. of a VJ and kind of for a short while Then he was out of yep. there and uh, Matt yep. Babel and uh, you know, Nan was there for quite some time, but it, but it was, they were really short stints, you know, they were mm-hmm. not there for a very long time. And they were also, um, it felt to me like kind of like a token, like okay, we have one black guy, VJ, we have one black female VJ, you know, that's what sort it of felt like to me. Um, so it's interesting, yeah. you, you know, you're a guest on, you know, black tea. And one of the early successes of the show is that, you know, if we're to pat ourselves on the back is that, you know, we're both black and unapologetically. So, right. so. Uh, and being that sort of one black guy or gal, you know, you know, who shows, uh, you know, they like to tick off a box or where that one person is supposed to represent the entire race that gets really tired. All right. And um, yeah. And, and that's what we seem to have mastered here in Canada, whereas this show, it's very different. It's two unapologetically black co-hosts. So so here's the question for you. Um, uh, you know, you know, is Canada ready? You know, whether it be a much music or another media house that you've been attached to or are attached to is our country ready to have more than one black face on a television screen or a radio show? <laughs> you know you know what I mean? Like no different than how we see, you know, the two white guys combo every day or we'll see two yeah. white people working together. You see that like every day in Canada. Is Canada ready for something like that?
0: Ooh, I mean, I think Canada is ready. I think that all of the big media institutions, um, I don't think that they are there to give that opportunity to all of the very talented Black people who could very well, I could name 10 people at the top of my head who should be co-hosting show, 10 pairs off the top of my head of Black um, talent in this country who should be hosting their own shows. Hmm. Um, And and the fact that that doesn't exist on a mainstream network right now goes to show that I think Canada is ready, but I don't think those networks are ready because otherwise they would have done it already. Um, And yeah, and I think it's sad because never mind the talent we've already lost to the bullshit of this in- industry, but the fact that yeah, like uh, Kayla Gray, and I'm you know not just dropping her name because she's one of my best friends, but like the talent that that woman possesses, the fact that she doesn't have her own show right now <laughs> is to me is just like a missed opportunity, and also or Tyrone Edwards. Another great example, also a friend of mine. But, you know, the industry is very small. We all know each other. Um, but I also think that, you know, if you look at uh, the episode of The Social that I was on, um, where it was uh, all Black people on that show, it was a quote-unquote special mm-hmm. edition. It was a share-your-chair edition of the show, which I ended up being a great episode. I loved everybody that I was on that those panels with. Um, but you dropped but the, the bomb in your segment... Have- you dropped that. Bomb. I, I, I did. In, uh you know, call up for not having any black voices behind the scenes, which they do have one mm-hmm. now. I yeah, I think that the fact that that was seen as like such a special, yep. different, groundbreaking day to me just goes to show where we at, where we're at. We've got work to do.
1: Yeah, we got work to do. And it's not us that have to do the work, and I think that's the interesting part. Where it's like, you know, you know black squares aside, allyship one hundred one aside, like we don't have to teach. We have you guys have to learn how to treat us with what things that we already deserve. You know, mm-hmm. this is a this is a reckoning moment for a reason. Like it's just not acceptable, and. Besides the, you know, the invisible labor, the wasted, the the just tragic and cruel circumstances of racism. One of them for me is just like, you know, you're taking away our ability to thrive, Mm, you know, to live, to rest, to love. It affects everything. So I don't know. I just think that this is it's really it's radical work. And I really thank you for doing the work and setting an example because, you know, people are always looking at you.
0: Thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you're right. It affects everything. And I think that it's, um, you know, I quote Toni Morrison in uh, in the piece about how she's, her famous quote about how racism is a distraction and it distracts you from doing the work. And I think it also, I love that you mentioned love and even like personally, all of this affects Mm -hmm. us. You know, if you're going to a toxic work environment every day, you bring that home and then don't even the
1: medical industry doesn't even treat us equally like let's not even get started on it's just it's holistic and you know it is cruel but like our beauty and resilience in that like and being able to deliver this information to people and live through it that's why some people like there's different work for all of us to do Mm -hmm. absolutely thank you so much kathleen uh for sharing this wealth of information chilling with us we're not
0: in the studio. Thank you so much for having gosh. me. This was so fun. I'm such a big fan of
1: both of you. We're a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to our tea segment. This is the part of the show where we air our grievances and basically talk about what's bothering us.
2: Yeah. There and there are a lot of things. Like I'm I'm irritated, I'm angry. I'm pissed. I'm I'm bang. I'm I'm the angry black man. I'm going to play that uh, care, that role today, um, and and perhaps over the next eight episodes. Uh, so you know, in today's Asleep at the Wheel files, uh, we present to you, drum roll, please, Jamaica's High Court. Oh my god, which is comparable to our Supreme Court.
1: This story is
2: no, it's just it's insulting. It's I mean, anyways, in a nutshell, Jamaica's High Court. You know, they had this poor family, the Virgo family, stuck in courts for the last two years. Over their daughter's right to wear dreadlocks and sc- to school. Okay. Is this, uh, is this 2020 or 2020? 2020 you, you know, know BC. And even like the what's going on?
1: Respectability politics wrapped up in appearance in hair, the historical context of dreads. Like, you know, I know that you, you had dreads. This is your thing. Yeah uh it's yes. a, it's it's uh, there's just so many levels of fury that i'm feeling from this story and like yes it feels like it's a time capsule in terms of reading it but like just ha- like what
2: <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah it's in so you're telling me in jamaica in 2020 this like you're allowed to openly discriminate against people who actually choose to wear their hair natural including rasta frames like is is this really happening Mel?
1: uh it is and they're citing the court is citing hygiene reasons it's called kensington primary school it's in a kingston suburb and what is kingston the biggest city in jamaica the capital city of yeah yeah yeah. so kingston's huge and you know it's a ruling by the supreme court this is a two year battle she's five years old and she has to cut her dreads like this Cross like we've been we've seen this happen in the sports world we've seen this happen in school like when is it gonna stop
2: yeah, yeah. No, it needs to stop now, like yesterday. I mean, I'm a, you know, big fan of reggae dancehall music. And it, it, it's it's no wonder a lot of artists spend so much time in their music burning down, uh, as they say, called Babylon, right, you know. Right. So in most reggae artists, they're like questioning government figures and authority figures like or burning fire on them. And it, it, this, this is the reason why, you know, I, I don't
1: blame them. Yeah. And, you know, luckily, her parents, who both wear dreadlocks, they're going to appeal And um, Shireen Virgo, the mother, said, I will not be cutting my daughter's hair if they give me that ultimatum again. I will be moving her. And it's like, you know, to even can you imagine having to something that is, is naturally a part of you, naturally a part of your identity? You have to explain for your child. We actually have to fight for your legal right to show up in school. Like there's black kids getting arrested at schools. There's there's, you know, there's still police officers in school. Like every element of us is being policed. And I'm sorry, the last time I checked, we can't change the texture of our hair, nor should we want to.
2: No, for sure. And just even when you peel back the layers, when we talk about, um, you know, what's what's one of Jamaica's biggest exports to the world? You know, it's like Bob Marley. And the Wailers, You know, it's yep. a Rastafari. Everybody wants you know what the I mean? culture. Like, yep. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you're going to like, you know, spit on spit in the face of uh, your biggest cultural export, which is Rastafarianism and reggae music, I mean, you can you can Jamaican government can save me with that. Yeah.
1: And my whole thing is like colonialist government aside, this is why I get so upset when people pretend to be innocent about this whole cultural appropriation conversation. And, you know, the Kardashians and and white girls and just, you know, even people here wearing braids wearing this it's you know i never know what to do don't do it these are like look at the ways in which we even have to fight to be to wear our hair in its natural state so our hair is a political statement so if you have to question it don't do it
2: no, it's draining, and here's the here's the crazy thing too. Mel is, uh, you know, when when you go to Jamaica, and uh, you check out the vendors, you know, the gift shops and all that, right. you know, so you're gonna tell me it's okay to sell those silly dreadlock hats, you know, with of the course. rasta colors, yeah. right? But what? But but kids can't wear their natural hair in schools. That's just absolutely insane. It's actually, you know what it is? It's 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 ignorant or it's <laughs> ignorant. With
1: an H. Yeah, and this is the whole thing. Just because blackness is popular doesn't mean that we don't face discrimination. So don't get it twisted.
2: Yes. So burn fire on the uh, Jamaican high court, the government. This it, is it, a disaster that needs to end right now. I'd like to thank you all for listening to today's show. And I'm talking to you in the back as well. And uh, hey, you can get me on socials. I'm ubiquitous, omnipresent. I'm everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, I'm at Dalton Higgins 5 on socials. That's the one good place to start.
1: I am at Malena Williams on my Twitter, all of my social media. I'd like to thank our amazing guest, Kathleen newman Barang, for that great conversation and our incredible producer, Ryan Clark. See you next week.